You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 93, the Dave Matthews Band breaks up. As General Washington prepared for the expected British invasion of New York City in the summer of 1776, the overwhelming force of British regulars was not his only worry. New York was filled with Tories. It may have been the most pro-British of the 13 colonies. Even before the Continental Army moved to New York, local patriots had forced the royal government out of New York City. Operating under Isaac Sears, who was an active leader of the Sons of Liberty, patriots forced Royal Governor Tryon to flee the city in 1775. He could only rule over the colony from a British Navy ship in the harbor. The New York Tories could not speak publicly about their views, but there were too many of them to lock up or banish from the colony. So, unlike Boston, where the relatively small numbers of Tories had been bottled up in the city, along with the regulars, the Continental Army in New York found itself surrounded and intermingling with thousands of people who remained loyal to the king. Most Tories had left the city itself, but Staten Island and Long Island had plenty of them. Now, much of the Continental Army settled into the city. For the Continental soldiers, who were mostly small-town New Englanders, New York City was a bit of a culture shock. The city had a pretty large red-light district known as the Holy Ground. The name was derived from the fact that Trinity Church owned most of the real estate in the neighborhood, and of course the irony of the name was lost on no one. Of course, it's not like Boston didn't have prostitutes. It did. But in Puritan Boston, the prostitutes maintained a very low profile. In New York, Soldiers and officers were shocked by the brazenness as the prostitutes actively plied their trade. One young lieutenant commented on their impudence and immodesty. After getting to know them a little better, though, he was even more shocked by their apparent brutality. Even so, soldiers actively availed themselves of their services. By some accounts, there were as many as 500 women working in the Holy Ground area. As I said, the district was nothing new. It had been serving locals since at least the 1760s. But the influx of thousands of young soldiers away from home caused business to boom. In the evenings, soldiers would head to the district to get drunk and get laid. Within weeks of arrival, syphilis began spreading through the ranks. And of course, in the days before antibiotics, syphilis could often mean a slow and painful death. It's not entirely clear whether the New York prostitutes were particularly pro-Tory or whether the motive was money or some sadistic pleasure, but in April 1776, two Continental soldiers turned up dead, one of them brutally castrated, in one of the Holy Ground brothels. 
The result was that the soldiers rioted for days, destroying brothels and openly fighting in the streets with some of the locals. The men tore down the brothel where the army had found the two dead soldiers and damaged several others. A few days later, locals found the dead body of a prostitute dumped into an outhouse, presumably killed during the riots. General Washington ordered a curfew, punished drunkenness with public floggings, and did what he could to keep the army and prostitutes separate. But he did not attempt a complete ban on soldiers visiting Holy Ground entirely. Detachments were sent to keep order where there had been trouble, but identifying soldiers in Holy Ground was very difficult since almost none of them wore uniforms. The act of rioting only lasted a few days before the fighting stopped, and business dipped a little for a short time, but soon returned to normal. Soldiers continued to risk their lives for visits to the Holy Ground. If the muted presence of Tories in the city was bad, it was even worse in some of the outlying areas, like Long Island or Staten Island. In many of the outskirts, Tories still spoke openly in favor of supporting the king and of forming militia units to support the regulars once they arrived. There were still a few companies of regulars in New York. These units, however, remained aboard ships in New York Harbor. They did not attempt to establish permanent bases anywhere, not even on some of the islands that remained Tory strongholds. There simply were not enough of them to protect against a patriot raid to capture or kill them. Now, Generals Lee and Washington both attempted to cut off interactions between loyalists aboard ships and the patriots who still remained on shore. Before General Lee had arrived in the city, goods and information flowed freely between the fleet and the city. The Continental Army made commerce a little more difficult, but the fleet was able to get the food and supplies it needed from the surrounding islands. As I said, there were plenty of Tories, as well as other merchants who were happy to sell for hard money. The fleet also spread the word that the regulars were on their way and that loyal colonists should prepare for their arrival as best they could. A days after his arrival from Boston in April, Washington had written the local committees of safety to do what they could to disrupt communications between Governor Tryon aboard ship and the many Tory elements in the region. Two months later, in June, Washington reported that little had changed and that the royal governor was still stirring up trouble. Concerned about Tory activity, Washington instructed General Israel Putnam, his second-in-command in New York, to arrest some of the key Tories in and around New York City. He wanted it done quietly so as to avoid stirring up loyalist sentiments. Putnam should arrest notorious leaders espousing opposition to the Patriot cause and send them to a prison set up in Connecticut for this purpose. The Patriots managed to round up quite a few Tories, but numerous others escaped their grasp. Richard Hewitt was a prominent Tory living out on Long Island near Suffolk. Fans of the AMC series Turn, which is loosely based on events on Long Island during the Revolution, may know Hewitt as a British officer. In fact, Hewitt was a native-born New Yorker. Putnam authorized the arrest of Hewitt and deployed a group on horseback to go out to Hempstead in Suffolk County to arrest him. Hewitt, however, rounded up a group of loyalists who armed themselves and stayed in his house. When the Patriots arrived, the two parties exchanged fire in what is sometimes called the Battle of Hempstead Swamp. It was hardly a battle, though. 
It really involved a few dozen men at most and didn't have any known casualties. The Patriot attackers realized they could not take the house and returned home empty-handed. Months later, when the regulars arrived, Hewitt would raise a regiment of loyalist militia and would command them as a lieutenant colonel. Another prominent Tory, Oliver Delancey, lived on Manhattan, just north of town, in the area which is today part of Central Park. Delancey came from one of the wealthiest and most politically powerful families in New York. He had sat on the governor's council for decades, but for many years Delancey tended to support colonial protests against taxes and other parliament restrictions. But when it came time to take up arms in support of the cause, Delancey thought that was just going too far and spoke out against rebellion. Now labeled a prominent loyalist, he faced arrest. In June, Delancey fled his farm and escaped to the British fleet in the harbor. Months later, when the regulars took the city, Delancey would be one of the top Loyalist militia officers, rising to the rank of Major General. What all this showed was that, even before the British fleet arrived for the invasion, Washington could not control the region because of too much Loyalist sympathy. New York simply was not New England. Patriots redoubled their efforts to arrest Tories after a discovery of a conspiracy to target George Washington himself. The suspected instigator of this conspiracy was Governor Tryon. But since Tryon was bottled up in New York Harbor, he had to rely on men still in the city. One of those men was New York City Mayor David Matthews, whom Tryon had appointed in February 1776. After the Continental Army occupied New York City, they left Matthews alone, and Matthews in turn probably tried to keep a very low profile. Matthews was not just sitting around, though. There is good evidence that he was working with a band of men who planned to either assassinate Washington and some other top Continental officers, or possibly capture them and turn them over to the British. Now, as far as I know, David Matthews did not go by Dave, nor was he really the leader of this band. The group is probably better known as the Hickey Conspiracy or the Tryon Plot. For some reason, though, I like calling it the Dave Matthews Band. That isn't really historically accurate, though. In any event, the conspiracy involved bribing several members of Washington's lifeguard. This was an elite group of soldiers that the Continental Army had established back in March 1776 in Boston to provide protection for General Washington. In effect, they acted as his personal bodyguard. The plan was to have these men who had Washington's trust to turn on him and kill or capture him as soon as British regulars began their attack on New York. Before that happened, though, the conspiracy fell apart. In June, one of Washington's guards, Sergeant Thomas Hickey, ended up in prison for passing counterfeit notes. The Irish-born Hickey had been a British regular who had deserted and then joined the Continental Army in Cambridge. Despite his past position with the enemy, he was selected to join Washington's lifeguards. While in prison, Hickey bragged to a fellow prisoner, Isaac Ketchum, that he was part of a conspiracy to kill Washington and then defect back to the British Army. Ketchum decided to turn prison snitch and revealed the information in exchange for his own release from prison. Hickey then faced a court-martial. He admitted taking bribes, but claimed he never intended to go through with it. 
He just wanted to take the money from gullible Tories. The court-martial did not buy his story and sentenced him to death. On June 28th, Hickey went to the gallows, the first Continental soldier to be executed by court-martial. Most of the army and most of the city turned out to see the execution. It was supposed to be one of the most widely viewed executions up until that time in America. According to some other accounts, Ketchum exposed only that Hickey was conspiring to desert to the enemy, not to kill Washington. Hickey was convicted of conspiracy and sedition, but the court-martial never actually heard any testimony about the assassination plot. Whether Hickey was part of the assassination plot or not, though, there did appear to be one. Another man named Samuel Francis testified before Congress after the war that he had exposed the plot and was falsely accused of being part of the conspiracy and imprisoned for a time. Whoever exposed the plot, an assassination plot did seem to exist. Once the plot was exposed, Patriots arrested Matthews and 12 others suspected of being involved. They shipped them off to Connecticut. Matthews was placed under house arrest in the custody of his brother-in-law, who was a major in the Connecticut militia. Several years later, Matthews escaped and returned to New York City, by then under British control. Matthews resumed his role as mayor of the city, as well as leader of the Tory militia. He remained in those roles until the British evacuation in 1783. The Patriots never prosecuted anyone else, even though Hickey allegedly claimed that over 700 men were part of the plot. There simply was no evidence to convict anyone, and the Patriot leadership was probably not eager for the public to know that Continental soldiers had plotted to kill their commander. Also, for civilians, there was still the problem that there were no treason laws on the books, except for those laws about committing treason against the king. All of this was happening while the Continental Army was awaiting the imminent invasion by the British. As it turned out, though, the British really were in no hurry to take New York. The first of the invasion fleet did not begin to arrive until July, and most of them would not arrive until August. That gave the Continental Army all summer to improve and expand its defenses. While they did use the time to build up fortifications, in many ways time was not on their side. Patriot forces grew to over 20,000, but most of them were militia from New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. The Continental Army itself had grown again, but was still under 10,000. Militia were often untrained and sometimes uncooperative in following orders. The Continental Army was not much better. Remember, most of Washington's army left service at the end of their enlistments in December 1775. Washington had to replace most of his men with new recruits. This meant that even the Continental soldiers mostly had less than six months' experience, and almost none in combat. In May, Washington had to deploy General Sullivan along with 3,000 soldiers to Canada. I'll get into the details for that deployment in a couple of weeks, but this only weakened Washington's forces in New York. Disease also continued to wreak havoc with the army. It was not unusual for one-third of the army to be too sick for active duty at any time. Rather than focus on training and drilling, the army spent much of its time digging ditches and building forts and other entrenchments. While these defenses were important, 
the army needed more time and training for the soldiers to fight in battle, and that simply did not happen. In Boston, Washington had regular intelligence about the enemy, thanks to patriots who remained in Boston during the occupation. He had no such intelligence network in New York, meaning he largely did not know what the Loyalists were doing, nor could he control their communications with the British fleet. He would eventually build a spy network, but he did not have one at this time. Washington might also have benefited greatly from cavalry, which could have scouted Long Island and completed longer-distance raids. Connecticut volunteers had arrived in New York with horses. However, since Congress had not authorized payment for the care and feeding of horses, the soldiers had to send them back to Connecticut. So Washington did not get a cavalry. One of the most critical defenses for the Patriots was the Gowanus Heights on Long Island. Washington delegated authority for those defenses to General Nathaniel Greene. I've mentioned Greene in several earlier episodes, but I've not really introduced him. Greene was one of the original group of Brigadier Generals which Congress had commissioned in June 1775. He would be the only general besides Washington to serve as a general for the entire war. Greene was only 33 years old when he joined the Continental Army. He came from a Quaker family in Rhode Island. His family's pacifist roots did not exactly predict a military career, but Greene was obsessed with the military from a young age. He eventually left the Quaker community as a result. Greene also developed a friendship with Henry Knox well before the war began. Greene was always looking to buy books on military strategy, and Knox's bookstore in Boston was the only one in the region that carried a wide variety of such books. Green's family made its money in commercial shipping. When London began increasing tariffs and cracking down on smuggling in the 1760s, his business suffered. Green owned one of the ships seized by Lieutenant Duddingston of the Gaspé. Green sued Duddingston personally, and there's some evidence that when the Patriots raided and burned the Gaspé, that the local sheriff was attempting to serve papers on Duddingston, before they shot him, that is. A Green helped form a militia unit in Rhode Island and hoped to be voted its commander. The soldiers voted for someone else, though, because Green had a limp from a childhood accident that made him unable to march smartly. Despite the disappointment, Green remained in the regiment as a private. Even as a private, Green still had important personal and professional connections in the government. As a result, after Lexington, the Assembly chose Green to become a militia general and lead its regiments to Cambridge. So, overnight promotion from private to general, not bad. General Green stood out in Cambridge for enforcing strict order among the Rhode Islanders, requiring camps be built in straight lines, men properly uniformed, and maintain regular drills. This made the Rhode Islanders stand out among the chaotic camps around Cambridge and brought Green to Washington's attention. Green, however, got his commission in the Continental Army primarily because Congress was making an effort to include as many colonies as possible in the leadership, and Green was the highest ranking officer from Rhode Island. Still, Green impressed Washington in Cambridge, and now Washington was putting more responsibility into the hands of this young general who had never seen a real battle. Green had been back in Rhode Island during the Battle of Bunker Hill, 
and during the Battle of Dorchester Heights, Greene deployed along with General Sullivan north of Boston, prepared to invade the city should the British attack Dorchester at the south of Boston. Since that never happened, Greene sat miles away from the action. Greene put great effort into the defenses on Long Island, though, as we'll see when we get to the battle, his inexperience left some serious gaps that the enemy exploited. Greene was sick and not in command by the time the British invaded. He had joined much of his army in the hospital with what modern historians guess was typhoid. By the end of the war, Greene would turn out to be one of the best generals in the Continental Army, and in my opinion, one of the most underrated. But during the fighting in New York, his inexperience would show badly. Greene's inexperience, however, was the general rule, not the exception, in the Continental Army. This young army of recent civilians prepared to receive the largest British invasion force ever sent overseas. Since General Howe is going to take his time and wait until August before he begins his fight in New York, I'm going to turn to some other areas for the next few weeks. Next week, I will turn attention back to the Continental Navy in the Battle of Turtle Gut Inlet. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. Last week, I welcomed our first Robert Morris Circle supporter from Patreon. Today, already, I have the privilege of announcing a second. I've mentioned Dave Salvador on this show before. Recently, he started a website at AmericanRevolutionToday.com. It provides a summary of an event from the revolution on the anniversary of the event. He also has a Twitter account, at AmRevToday if you prefer to get your information that way. Just last week, he added to this by starting the Today in American Revolution History podcast. This is a podcast version of his daily subject. It runs about five minutes, and a new one comes out every single day. American Revolution Today is a great way to get your daily dose of the American Revolution. Dave has a genuine attachment to the American Revolution as a topic, and does a great job sharing it with the world. As I said, the podcast just started a few days ago, 
but it's already available on iTunes and most other platforms. If you're jonesing for more American Revolution content, you need to check this out. Now, the other online resource that I wanted to mention this week is a well-known one and well-established one, the Journal of the American Revolution. The journal's been around for over six years and publishes some top-notch articles about the revolution every week. It's completely free and available online at allthingsliberty.com. It has a whole library of articles on a wide range of topics. All of them are well-researched and carefully footnoted. So, if you haven't already, be sure to check it out, and you can even sign up for the free email subscription. Now, I'll apologize this week also for the title of the episode, which I guess was a little misleading, but I just thought it was funny and couldn't resist. But the episode did cover the very serious topic of the attempt to assassinate George Washington. People sometimes make the mistake of thinking the British Army at this time was all about proper rules of warfare, and it would never engage in plots or espionage or other unseemly aspects of war. This is absolutely wrong. British leaders used whatever tactics they thought would work, from printing counterfeit money to bribing patriot leaders to assassination attempts and much more. The plot against Washington was a very real one. If the conspirators were not so incredibly stupid to talk about their plot with strangers, one could imagine a very different course of history. And today's book recommendation explores this plot in detail. It's called The First Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill George Washington by Brad Meltzer and Josh Mensch. It was just released a few months ago in January 2019. The last couple of weeks, I've recommended some rather dry and academic books. This week goes in a very different direction. The First Conspiracy is written, as I said, by Meltzer, who has written a number of fictional thrillers, and Mensch, who has mostly written for TV documentaries. Now, the book is meticulously documented, but it is written with some hyped-up language designed to engage the reader as if you were reading a fictional novel. Now, while that is the style, as I said, everything that is written is well-researched nonfiction. The plot itself is not really revealed in full at the time, and there really hasn't been a lot more uncovered since then. So we don't know the full extent of the details of the plot or everyone who may have been involved. And that may be why the first 200 pages of this book, which is just over 350 in total, deals with introductory events leading up to the plot itself. This is not a criticism. Those introductory events are very interesting in and of themselves. Although the book is relatively new, it did manage to make the New York Times bestseller list, and I would not be surprised to see it win some awards this year. So if you want to read more about the assassination plot against Washington, this book is a great place to start. Well, that's all I have for this week. I hope you will join me next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.